Welcome to episode 23 in the third season of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and I'm here with our host, John Carpe, who is the president and founder of the Center. This show will be looking at the Supreme Court of Canada, some comments and controversy surrounding its Chief Justice, Richard Wagner. And I hope we'll have time to discuss a couple of recent Supreme Court decisions in the context of these comments and this controversy. I'll footnote this introduction by stating that our topic was, at least initially, inspired by a National Post article by Tristan Hopper that came out this week entitled, quote, Supreme Court doesn't want your political criticism, even if they keep doing political things, unquote. A link, of course, will be provided in the show notes. But John, why don't you start off by describing how Supreme Court Chief Justice Richard Wagner is back in the news. The uh, Queen's University law professor Bruce Party is one of several lawyers that has filed a formal complaint against Chief Justice Richard Wagner over Freedom Convoy comments that he made uh, according to an April 9th article in Le Devoir, which is... Uh, leading newspaper in Quebec. And uh, Bruce Party says that if the account in Le Devoir is accurate, the Chief Justice's comments starkly illustrate the degree to which judges feel at liberty to embrace progressive consensus at the expense of judicial neutrality. And so in mid-May, a group of lawyers, including Bruce Party filed a complaint with the Canadian Judicial Council, which, among other things, will receive complaints in regards to uh, to judges. And uh, on the National Post story, there's there's a link to a complaint. Makes for very interesting reading. If anybody wants to go to the National Post and look up Bruce Party's uh, article, and then in that article, you can actually re- read the complaint itself. Oh, so they actually posted the complaint as well. Okay, great. But that's not why he's in the news, as I mentioned. He's in the news because he's complaining about people criticizing their impartiality (laughs) or their neutrality, I should say. Yes, Tristan Hopper wrote a very interesting article talking about how Chief Justice Richard Wagner and and other and his predecessors, they've always disliked accusations that Canada's top judges are anything less than neutral arbiters of the law. So they can't stand it when they're being called uh, political or pursuing a particular political agenda. And uh, he mentions, uh, Tristan Hopper mentions in his article that uh, in 2004, Chief Justice Wagner's predecessor, Beverly McLaughlin, uh, could be heard saying that um, the the charge of the court being political undermines public confidence in all of our institutions. But the irony here, and Tristan Hopper does a great review of just some of the very controversial cases, which I guess whether you like it or not, they really are political decisions uh, ranging from assisted suicide to abortion to privatized healthcare. Um, and it's not the court's fault uh, because we had the big change in 1982, 40 years ago, where we used to have a British-style system of parliamentary sovereignty and, you know, parliament passed the law. If you didn't like the law, you could use the democratic process successfully or unsuccessfully to try to change that law. But you couldn't go into court and say, well, th- this law violates my rights and freedoms, so I'm going to ask a court to shut it down. That was not available prior to 1982. But what's happened, of course, since 1982, uh, since courts were given these new powers, which they didn't ask for, but they have them, you've got the courts deciding on you know, abortion and capital punishment and immigration and private health care. And it just doesn't make any sense to, to pretend that, that there's just no politics involved. In fact, our Judicial Freedom Index, uh, which the Justice Center has, has released in the past, uh, we don't release it every year because some years there's only two or three decisions of the Supreme Court that um, are rendered in regards to our fundamental charter freedoms of expression and association and religion and conscience and so on. Uh, but we'll probably end up doing another one. We might do it once every five years. But our Judicial Freedom Index shows that certain judges have tendencies to be more 
pro-freedom in their their attitude, in their mentality. Because you see this when you have the divided decisions of the Supreme Court. Now, for there's a lot of unanimous rulings. Uh, we might get into two of them. One of the cases we'll look at later is the Bissonnette case, where the Supreme Court struck down Section 745.51 of the Criminal Code, which Parliament introduced to get rid of the concurrent sentences. So if you shoot and kill five people at a mosque or a shopping mall or a church or a bowling alley or what have you, you're going to serve your five sentences concurrently at the same time. So whether you kill one person or five people, it's the same 25 years of ineligibility for parole. Parliament deliberately changed this to say, well, if you kill five people, uh, you're going to be treated more uh, harshly, more severely than if you kill one person. So the Supreme Court, May 27th, struck that down. We'll get into that one. Another case on um, intoxication, where uh, somebody voluntarily ingested alcohol mushroom, and magic mushrooms and committed some violent crimes, and Supreme Court has weighed on that as well. Now, you can agree or disagree with the court rulings, but to suggest that there are no politics involved here in terms of the attitudes and beliefs and assumptions of the judges I think it's just absurd. I think that's just denying reality. Uh, right. Well, to err is human, right? You know, so obviously these judges are human. They're going to have biases. I don't suppose that we can uh, criticize them for that. You know, I'm sure they, they attempt to maintain some kind of partiality. But I mean, it seems like since 1982, the complaint of judicial activism is evergreen. It's something that pops up you know, every year we are always talking about it, but, but what you implied was that it's in, we can't avoid it anymore. And that's well, the fault of the charter. Now, let's go through, let's go through some of the examples that, that Tristan Hopper in his article, he talks about the um, assisted suicide. Now, assisted suicide for many years was a crime. And I think it kind of makes sense that, <laughs> If assisted suicide is legal, you've got you've got a problem you're going to have to contend with. Where, let's say, Peter kills Paul, but and so Paul dies, and then Peter said, "Well, he asked me to help him commit suicide." <laughs> you know, right? Yeah, and yeah, and too, and Paul Paul is dead. Paul can't. Paul's not alive to say I did not ask him to help me commit suicide. He just murdered me. So there's kind of a practical problem there. So assisted suicide was illegal for that practical problem and presumably also to discourage suicide because there's a, a moral you know, belief that suicide is, is not a good thing and it should be discouraged. So Sue Rodriguez challenged this in the late 80s. The court ruling came out in 1993. She was a woman who sadly had ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. And so she was gradually losing her ability to move all of her muscles. And I'm not an expert on ALS. I had a family member died of it a number of years ago. And it's my understanding that, uh, you know, at the end, you can't even breathe or swallow because your muscles just get weaker and weaker. And so she wanted the right to kill herself when the disease got to a stage uh, where she no longer, you know, wanted to live and, and deal with it. And so she wanted to kill herself, but her concern was that the disease would take away her capacity. She would get to a point where if she wanted to kill herself, she wouldn't be able to do it. So she wanted somebody else's help. Now, narrow 5-4 decision, 1993 in Rodriguez, the Supreme Court upheld the criminal sanctions against assisted suicide. And so it said, uh, this government policy is part of our fundamental conception of the sanctity of life. So it said, yes, Ms. Rodriguez, you have a valid point, and four out of nine would have ruled in her favor, but there's five Supreme Court justices that said, uh, no, we're notwithstanding this fact scenario. You know, more broadly speaking, maybe they were thinking that uh, a hard case makes for a bad law, uh, but generally we're going to uphold this law against uh, assisted suicide. Yeah, so, as I recall, it was uh, just a matter of the default being criminality. That was the, sort of the default. There were assisted suicides that had occurred, and you know, society had been dealing with that, but the default was always to make it illegal and then try to clear it up afterwards. So and that, that changed. Go ahead. Just 
Then the Carter, then the Carter decision came out in 2015 or 2016 and was a total reversal of the 1993 decision. So, you know, barely 20 years, uh, 22 years later, we get, uh, we get this reversal and the Supreme Court says that, uh, there cannot be a criminal prohibition on assisted suicide. So whatever your views are on the question, let's not pretend it's not political. It's not political in the sense that the judges are trying to win votes or running for office, not in that sense, but this is a, it's a public policy question, which is a political question. The courts through no choice of their own, they are, they get asked <laughs> to make right. a ruling and the ruling will be political because whether they uphold the criminal prohibition on assisted suicide as the court did in 1993 in Rodriguez or whether they strike it down as a, an unjustified violation of the right to life, liberty and security of the person, which I guess the right to life includes the right to kill yourself, according to the court in the Carter case. Either way, this is, uh, this is political. And what comes into it, if you had nine Supreme Court justices who were all, uh, you know, devoutly religious in some uh, faith that really upheld the sanctity of life, you would probably have a repeat of the Sue Rodriguez decision, but you get kind of secular progressive values that don't look at the sanctity of life the same way. And they value the personal autonomy as higher. And so it's your own bodily autonomy. And so you have this, uh, almost want to say God-given right to commit suicide. I don't know if they're arguing it's God-given, but you know, you've got this part of your bodily autonomy is you have a right to commit suicide. And so the state cannot interfere with your right to this the sacrosanct right to bodily autonomy. So, you know, either way, it's, it, it's political. And what the personal beliefs and personal assumptions, I mean, I understand judges are supposed to, you know, put all that aside, and I'm sure they try to, but on these constitutional cases, every person, including Chief Justice Richard Wagner and the other eight judges and you and me and every listener, we have fundamental assumptions about the meaning of life and the purpose of life. We might not even be aware of what they are, but we have metaphysical beliefs about why we exist and how we should live and what is right and what is wrong. We have all these as, as human beings. We have these beliefs. So we get these constitutional cases before judges it's just impossible to oust th those beliefs from a constitutional case where the court is asked to effectively create public policy. Now, the court would say, oh, we're not creating public policy. That's up to parliament. Well, okay, fine. But when somebody comes before the court and says, well, this law that parliament passed is an unjustified violation of my whatever, my freedom of religion or speech or conscience or association or peaceful assembly or my right to uh, bodily autonomy, my right to life, liberty, security of the person. Effectively, the court has to step in there and make what amounts to a political ruling uh, on whether the law passed by parliament is valid under the charter, yes or no. So, Okay, but are we saying that, you know, these are going to be political decisions. We have a right to criticize them because they're political decisions. The judges have no right to criticize us for criticizing them. Is that where we're at? I'm, I'm not sure. Exactly. Well, I think so, but nobody, I, I'm not sure if the, I, I'm not hearing Chief Justice Wagner say that criticism of court decisions should be illegal. That would be a very severe, blatant violation of the free expression rights. But, but charter or no charter, it's always been part of the judicial process that the public comments on and talks about court decisions. It's an informal part of the process, but it is, broadly speaking, I was taught in law school that public criticism of court cases and members of the public defending court cases, in the broad sense, that's also part of the judicial process because the public needs to be educated about the law and about how decisions are made and what our rights and freedoms are, so on and so forth. Even Chief Justice Wagner says, you know, the public uh, ought to be more enlightened about what rights and freedoms are. While I agree with him, I might have a different conception of, of what the free society is from from his. Uh, but I, I think, yeah, the public should be aware of, of charter rights and freedoms. But I sure. think they get sensitive. They don't like they don't like it when people say, "Well, you're being political." Oh no 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 no! We're we're above politics. We're just we're we're in this 
a beautiful, clean, pristine environment of pure law that's not polluted by politics. I think they want to believe and they want other people to believe that there's this gaping chasm that, you know, you've got politics way over here and that's kind of all dirty and it's, you know, it's, it's haggling and negotiating and compromising and bartering, you know, but they're, oh, they're not into that. No, no, they're all about the law in all of its pristine purity. And I think that's what they want everybody to believe. Well, I think the problem then uh, that Bruce Party is highlighting is that, you know, here we have a judge commenting, you know, on those politics, those dirty politics. Now, this would be fine in the in the event of a ruling on a case, he could comment, but here he's preemptively doing that. So their complaint is essentially that he's kind of jumped the shark here, right? He's he's uh, you know he's gone too far. I guess without a case, he's he's now entered the political realm without the other nine justices weighing in as well. You know, I mean, that's I think the uh, is the way I understand it. No, I, I agree with your analysis. I mean, Chief Justice Wagner and the other eight they they live in Ottawa or near Ottawa. All, all nine of them do. They're going to have their own personal opinions about you know how peaceful or not, how justified or not was the, the truckers' protest. They're going to have their own beliefs and opinions about whether the federal government was justified in uh, declaring a national emergency. That's all good and well. You can't ask people to not have their own opinions. The problem with, with Chief Justice Wagner's public comments is that he said in, uh, in his interview with Le Devoir, so he characterized the protest on Wellington Street uh, as, quote, the beginning of anarchy where some people have decided to take other citizens hostage. Wagner apparently declared that forced blows against the state, justice, and democratic institutions, like the one delivered by protesters, should be denounced with force by all figures of power in the country. So he calls the protest a blow against the state, a blow against justice, a blow against democratic institutions. It sounds like he's accusing the truckers of, of shutting down Parliament are shutting down the Supreme Court, which never happened. And, you know, anarchy is generally a, a negative term. Uh, whether the truckers were taking anybody hostage, I mean, that that's a matter of debate. Certainly Prime Minister Trudeau and Ontario Premier Doug Ford and the mayor of Ottawa and the CBC and most of the mainstream media very adamantly took the position that you know, this was akin to a hostage taking and that it was inflicting severe harm on Ottawa residents and that it was a blockade and that it was an occupation. Okay. You know, uh, that's one viewpoint. Uh, the other viewpoint, which I happen to share is yes, there was inconvenience to some Ottawa residents, but I've heard from way too many people that were in Ottawa that you could freely walk from one part of town to the other. There were members of parliament who said, I had no problem walking to work this morning through downtown Ottawa. But it's a legal issue that's going before the court, whether or not uh, the Justice Centre has, has a court action to challenge and to seek a court declaration that the prime minister wrongfully declared a national emergency. We've taken that to court. So this may very well end up before the Supreme Court of Canada. So the problem with Wagner's comments is not that he's got these personal opinions. Uh, you cannot expect anybody to not have personal opinions. The problem is that not only must justice be done, but justice must be seen to be done. And the impartiality of judges must be seen and appreciated. So therefore, when a judge says publicly that the peaceful protest of the truckers amounted to a hostage taking... <laughs> He should recuse himself if that matter comes before the Supreme Court of Canada. He should recuse himself because he's already tipped his hat. And not only must justice be done, justice must be seen to be done. Well, I don't know the process here that is uh, at the foundation of this complaint, but if they win their complaint, in other words, this judicial council agrees with them, is it just a matter of them saying, okay, judge, you shut up, or judge, you're wrong, or judge, you have to recuse yourself uh, from this point on? What exactly is the sanction if they if their complaint is accepted as truthful? I've not looked at the penalties that can be meted out, but my, uh, my educated guess is that it ranges from a reprimand to a recommendation that the judge no longer serve. 
there was a judge in Alberta, provincial court judge, criminal trial, and the uh, the accused was charged with sexual assault, used to be known as rape, but some 20, 30 years ago it became sexual assault. And he made some comments that uh, that some people found very offensive. I, I don't have it in front of me. There was a complaint filed against this judge. And even though he later, he was promoted, so to speak, he was on the Provincial Court of Alberta. So he was appointed there by the Alberta provincial government. Later on, he was appointed to the federal court trial division. And so he was already on the federal court and then the complaint was brought and then he was, his comments were insensitive to women or not sufficiently cognizant of the seriousness of, uh, of, of sexual assault. So he, he ended up, yeah, well, he ended up resigning, but the wheels were in motion to, towards, I think, an outcome where he was going to be somehow removed from the, uh, the court. So the end result was we had somebody through the process of the the judicial council, you know, and ended up being removed. So that okay, can happen. It can go that far, even with a judge on the Supreme Court. That's. I'll try to find an answer. If I can't, I'll at least provide some probing links in the show notes to that. Another example uh, of political decisions, you've got the Supreme Court ruling in Morgenthaler in 1988. And uh, the court struck down provisions of criminal code provisions that were in force that time that placed some restrictions on abortion. It was not a Roe v. Wade uh, equivalent. The uh, Supreme Court effectively urged Parliament to pass a different kind of law, and the Supreme Court of Canada expressly recognized that the government has a legitimate interest in protecting the unborn child. The court also said, you know, there's some right to bodily autonomy. And at the end of the day, the, the different judgments, there, there were, I believe, four different uh, judgments or three. I haven't read it recently. Uh, the gist of it was that uh, abortion should probably be legal in the early stages of pregnancy and probably illegal in the later stages if you wanted to kind of see where the court was going with that. Yeah, it's not the court's fault that it was asked you know the court didn't court was not lobbying courts weren't judges were not lobbying for to my knowledge they were not lobbying for this charter so that and it was 40 years ago so i mean even if <laughs> most of the people serving on the court 40 years ago are no longer serving on the court so this is something judges can't help the fact that somebody went to court and said that the existing abortion law in the 1980s, that this was a uh, an unjustified violation of the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, and that the restrictions on abortion were an infringement of uh, of bodily autonomy, the court had to issue a, a ruling, whether it wanted to or not. But again, it goes back to it's political in the sense that every judge has their own personal convictions about life and the meaning of life and the nature of life and the origins of life. And you can't render a decision without letting your own assumptions play some influence in your thinking. Right. Okay. So we can acknowledge this. So how much latitude do we permit them? You know, that's what I'm wondering about in the light of the complaint against the justice uh, recently, you know, uh, how much latitude should they be allowed? Do they just confine them to the rules well, they, they give? They have the latitude that they have. I mean, there's nobody, mm. there's nobody that can really step in and say, "Well, you're wrongfully exercising that latitude," except by use of the notwithstanding clause, which is Section 33, and this allows a, a parliament or a provincial legislature to opt out of a court ruling if the federal government, you know, the prime minister, the cabinet ministers, whatever, if the federal government or the provincial government, if they believe that the court ruling is so outrageous, so misguided, so stupid, so whatever. We have a provision. Uh, was used by Ontario Premier Doug Ford uh, about four years ago. He had passed a law reducing the number of city councillors on the Toronto 
city council from something like 55 or 57 down to only 25. And he made them line up with the provincial and federal seats. Ontario has done something which I happen to think is, is quite sensible. Their provincial and federal ridings are identical. In all the other provinces, to my knowledge, you've got a different number, right? So like Alberta, for example, has 87 MLAs. And we have, oh, I forget now, 34, but a different number of federal constituents, right? So it's not always clear. I, I could have one MLA and be in the same federal riding with you, but you, you, you and I have the same MP, but we don't have the same MLA because these boundaries are all over the place. So Ontario, federally and provincially, they have the same ridings and the same number of ridings. So for every riding, you've got a federal MP and a provincial MPP, and they're in the same riding. So... Uh, Doug Ford extended this to city council and said, for the city of Toronto, you're going to have 25 councillors. They're going to match up with your provincial, your member of provincial parliament and your member of parliament and your city councillor. So this threw a bunch of um, candidates into chaos and disarray because now uh, there were fewer seats and there were even candidates who agreed philosophically and that were used to be friends, but now they had to run against each other in the same riding. And it was, uh, it was unpopular. I, I, I'm sympathetic. I've run for office twice. So, you know, it's hard on the candidates. Definitely the changes you could say were not fair to them. They've been campaigning for months in a particular seat and now suddenly that all got destroyed. Now, the court ruled that this move was a violation of freedom of expression, and it was a violation of the right to vote. Well, I'm sorry, that's just ridiculous. It didn't violate anybody's freedom of expression in any way. I mean, it was just absurd. It didn't violate the right to vote. It did impose a lot of hardship and inconvenience, and maybe it was a maybe it was a bad move. You could say, well, they they shouldn't have you know messed with the boundaries. Okay, just because it's a bad move, if it is, it doesn't mean it's a violation of your right to freedom of expression or your right to vote. So the Ford government stepped in, used the notwithstanding clause and said, we're sticking with this. And, you know, that that was that. Yeah, but that was a political move. And that certainly within their rights, I do recall that uh, I think I've mentioned before that the big concern has always been throughout the uh, history of the charter that people would start using the notwithstanding clause all the time. And now that it has been uh, used a couple of times, people are saying, no, no, we should go back to that era when nobody used it because they were afraid to. But I guess Quebec was, Quebec was never afraid to use it to uphold its yeah. language laws, which the Supreme Court had said were unjustified restrictions on freedom of expression. And uh, Quebec was using it, which, which gave it a bad name because people associate the notwithstanding clause with the uh, violation of free expression rights of the non-French minority in Quebec. And but Saskatchewan used it uh, a few years ago because there was a situation with a public school board and a Catholic school board. And the local people had made an arrangement that people were very happy with. And they had one Catholic school there. And all of the non-Catholics were happy to send their kids to that Catholic school just to avoid, you know, a one-hour commute. And so they they had worked things out because things get tricky when you've got a publicly funded Catholic system and a publicly funded, uh, I guess, what, public system. But depending on how many people live in a particular area, in the cities, it's quite easy uh, to, to handle. But anyway, a court struck this down to kind of close the Catholic school, and it was very upsetting to everybody. And the Saskatchewan government stepped in and the legislature used the notwithstanding clause and said, we're sticking with the, sticking with the status quo here right. on, uh, on this school. I tell you, throughout the pandemic, I have been wondering whether this notwithstanding clause will eventually come to bite us in the butt in the sense that, you know, if we ever get a ruling, you know, that says that these charter violating health measures were unjustifiable, well, at that point, the government can step in and say, notwithstanding clause, too bad, locked down. That is, uh, I guess, my concern about the notwithstanding clause, its future application in situations uh, where, you know, the, the rights abuses are egregious. Well, that ties in with this whole question of political activism. What is political activism? I actually think most people would have a hard time, most people, myself included, would have a hard time coming up with 
a good definition because when courts typically when the people who dislike a court ruling just say, oh, that's judicial activism. That's really bad. You know, the judges should be all restrained. But the same people, and the Shauli case comes to mind, 2005. Here we had what uh, a lot of people on the left denounced as horrible judicial activism when the Supreme Court of Canada in a 4-3 to ruling struck down Quebec's ban on private health insurance. And the court said that a government monopoly healthcare system that forces people to suffer and die on waiting lists is a violation of the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. And then there were six justices, seven justices in total. One of them was uh, Justice Deschamps, who was from Quebec, and she ruled against the government and struck down their ban on private health insurance based on the Quebec Charter of Human Rights which is provincial legislation. And after she did that, she said, uh, having made the ruling on this uh, basis, I'm not going to comment on the charter. <laughs> and the other six judges so hers ruled was on the, the charter. Dissent, wasn't it? Hers was a dissent, are you saying? Well, it tipped it, it, it tipped it over in, into the court striking down the legislation. Oh, Although okay. I've, it's my understanding that, that the government hasn't really responded too much to the court ruling and that there's still, you have the same restrictions on private healthcare in Quebec as previously, but uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure of, of that. But the interesting thing is, so you have the court doing something that, you know, conservatives, libertarians, right-wingers, whatever, they like this because people on the right don't like the government healthcare monopoly. They would say, look, uh, France and Germany, United Kingdom, Australia, Japan, Singapore, uh, every country in the world except for uh, Cuba, North Korea, and Canada, every other country in the world has private health care and they have laws in place and government policies in place, government programs in place, such that poor people do get access to free health care, but they do it in a way that doesn't impose a government monopoly where you know, your cancer screening, cancer diagnosis, cancer treatment, it's only the government monopoly that provides that. And, you know, outside of that, you can't buy insurance that might help you. Uh, your only other choice is to go to the United States and pay 50000 or or 100000 or a half million dollars for private medical care out of pocket. So the people on the right liked the Shaouli decision. The people on the left absolutely hated it. But I think it shows, you know, what what is judicial activism? Uh, you don't get, a, you don't come up with a with a clear definition. Some people would argue that if the courts had struck down lockdown policies and said these are unjustified violations, you would have had a lot of people say, "Oh, this is judicial activism." The the uh, the court should defer to the government. The government knows best. The government's protecting us and saving so many lives by taking away our charter rights and freedoms and forcing people into. Uh, isolation and loneliness and uh, unemployment and poverty and driving people to suicide. And this is all wonderful and we should defer to the government. So if the court strikes down a lockdown measure and says that's an unjustified violation of charter rights and freedoms, shame on the courts for being judicially activist. That's right. what you would hear. But as I pointed out, at that point, the government could, of course, invoke the notwithstanding clause. And then all those people that were objecting to the notwithstanding clause, would suddenly agree with it. <laughs> Unfortunately, this is the nature of politics, but... Uh, yeah. Well, that's that's what the Charter has done, is it's it's politicized the law, at least when it comes to constitutional issues. I don't think courts are politicized if if you've got the, uh, the ABC Corporation is suing the DEF Corporation over a million-dollar breach of contract. Uh, you know, I think that's... Uh, I think even in, in, in criminal law where uh, somebody's charged with shoplifting or first degree murder or whatever, you know, the, the judge is just going to kind of rule on the facts there, right? But on the constitutional issues where it's the law itself is being taken to court, the law is on trial. The law stands accused of unjustifiably violating uh, charter rights and freedoms. So the law is on trial. So in all those constitutional cases, I think the judges effectively are they're going to be political, whether they want to be or not. Again, 
you know, based on the fact that we're human and we have our metaphysical beliefs and assumptions about the meaning and purpose of life. Well, I think that nobody likes to be criticized. I think that's probably at the heart of this, a very human response. It does seem to be sort of part of a trend. There was an article that came out sort of concurrent with this about some elections report where the government wanted to make criticism of any uh, election activity subject to sanction, you know, so I mean, it was just more limited on free speech. And I think that's kind of, we see this happening more and more with government, oh, we don't want criticism. Therefore, you know, we're going to criminalize speech, whether it be on the internet or through election law or something like this. So I, I think it kind of is getting mixed up in that. But I mean, these arguments about judicial activism, obviously, by what you've cited, go a long way back. And I don't know whether they're ever going to end. I mean, if they did, I guess we wouldn't have anything to talk about. Well, let's let's look at two, since we're on the topic of the Supreme Court, let's just briefly look at two uh, recent cases. Uh, the Bissonnette case uh, on January 29th, 2017, 46 people were gathered in the Great Mosque of Quebec for evening prayer. Mr. Bissonnette burst in armed with a semi-automatic rifle and a pistol, opened fire on, on the worshippers, causing the death of six people and seriously injuring five others. Mr. Bissonnette pleaded guilty to the 12 charges laid against him, including six counts of first-degree murder. Now, the parliament in um, 2011, I think, uh, that would have been under the Harper government, they passed an act known as the Protecting Canadians by Ending Sentence Discounts for Multiple Murderers. Pretty specific wording there. So there have been a lot of push in previous decades by the survivors, family members of the victims of mass shootings complaining about the fact that uh, if you went into a, a mosque or a synagogue or a church or a shopping center or whatever, a golf course, if you went somewhere and you were a mass shooter and you killed a whole bunch of people, you got the same 20. You might say, okay, well, you're, you get sentenced to, you know, 10 terms of, for your, first degree murder for the, for the 10 people that you killed, you serve the 10 terms concurrently. So it's a life sentence, but you're eligible for parole at 25 years. So, so isn't this, that this, just in guidelines though? I mean, the your judge can make them non-concurrent. Isn't that, that's what I understood. I mean, we had, we have had serial killers in the past that have, you know, sort of served 300 years in Canada here. I don't know whether I'm just muddling it with the United States or not. But it seems to me that we have had a high-profile serial killers sort of dying in jail because their their sentences are not concurrent. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. Well, it is a life – first-degree murder is a life sentence, but you have the eligibility. You can apply for parole at 25 years. So notorious child killer uh, Clifford Robert Olson in British Columbia who went on a killing spree in the 1980s in BC and killed, I don't know whether it was uh, five or 10 or 15, uh, but just horrific. He would, uh, you know, kidnap a child. And uh, I, I don't even want to think about what kind of abuse may have been inflicted. Yes or no on the child would kill the child. He was eventually caught. So he died in jail. I, I vaguely recall he, he applied for parole, but that was denied. But according to the, the summary of the Supreme Court ruling that I've read, Section 745.51 of the Criminal Code, which was added by the Protecting Canadians by Ending Sentence Discounts for Multiple Murderers, uh, this section of the code authorizes a court to order that the periods without eligibility for parole for each murder convicted be served consecutively rather than concurrently. So there was a court discretion there. So that's right. all it did. So in this case, the trial judge ordered that Mr. Bissonnette serve a total ineligibility period of 40 years before being able to apply for parole. That was uh, appealed successfully, and the uh, Court of Appeal reversed that, and the Supreme Court of Canada agreed with the Court of Appeal. So I'm going to read some sections of this summary because it's quite interesting. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled that Section 745.51 authorizes the imposition of sentences of imprisonment that effectively deprive all offenders who receive such sentences of a realistic possibility 
of being granted parole before they died. And they say this is degrading in nature and incompatible with human dignity. The court goes on to say that Section 745.51 effectively authorizes uh, the imposition of a sentence of imprisonment for life without a realistic possibility of parole. This punishment is, by its very nature, intrinsically incompatible with human dignity. It is degrading in nature in that it presupposes, at the time of its imposition, that the offender is beyond redemption and lacks the moral autonomy needed for rehabilitation. And they say Parliament does have the latitude to establish sentences whose severity expresses society's condemnation of the offence committed, but Parliament may not prescribe a sentence that deprives every offender on whom it is opposed of any realistic possibility of parole from the outset. That's kind of a contradiction. On the one hand, Parliament can pass sentences whose severity expresses society's condemnation, but on the other hand, they can't. Okay, whatever. To ensure respect for human dignity, Parliament must leave a door open for rehabilitation, even in cases where this objective is of minimal importance. See, here we get into the values judgment, okay? Uh, Most people, I think, would agree that rehabilitation is an important principle. It's part of our philosophical uh, uh, tradition, uh, certainly part of the Christian tradition, this whole idea of redemption and people can seek forgiveness and can make amends and can build a new life and can have a second chance and people can receive forgiveness. Okay, I don't know to what extent uh, that, you know, the Christian ideals are, are in the law, but they, they certainly that, that's a, you know, tradition and foundation. So that's probably part of the rehabilitation thing. Whether its roots are Christian or not, it's, it's one of our legal principles. I just wanted to interject quickly here. I've heard these same arguments used for capital punishment. The fact that, you know, the extended sentences, you know, you're in jail till you die, you know, 40 years. This is cruel and unusual, and it's much more merciful to just put the person out of their misery. So I just, you know, I, I know that that's not being argued here, but I just wanted to make that point. But it's okay. The course legalized assisted suicide. So, you oh, know. Okay, there you go. But no, I, I hear you. I mean, this is this is an example, I think, of a values judgment where here the Supreme Court has elevated rehabilitation to something more important than denunciation and deterrence. So here, reading again from the court summary, where the offense of first-degree murder is concerned, rehabilitation is already subordinate to the objectives of denunciation and deterrence. But the objectives of denunciation and deterrence are not better served by the imposition of excessive sentences. Well, here, it's a values judgment. Again, the nine people on the Supreme Court feel that having somebody, you know, who's murdered five people in cold blood by going into a mosque and and shooting people and killing them, that it's excessive to have that person locked away for life. Well, Maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong, right? But this this is a values judgment. Parliament certainly decided that it was not excessive to lock a multiple murderer up so that they have no no possibility of ever getting out of jail. And I'm sure I'm quite confident that if if Parliament reintroduced capital punishment, I'm sure the Supreme Court of Canada would strike that down as a, as a violation of the charter as well. So by striking down this law, they've basically reimpose the discretion or have they made it sort of mandatory that all sentences be concurrent or that you're always allowed to apply for parole? My my understanding is that you have to be allowed to apply for parole after 25 years. So they've put the rehabilitation, which again, I think the rehabilitation is, it's a legitimate point to say, okay, you know, people should have a, a chance to reform themselves and improve themselves and change their ways and and so on and so forth. But the court is putting the rehabilitation, I think, ahead of denunciation and deterrence, because you could also argue if you murder five people, why should you be allowed to apply for parole after 25 years when you've killed five people? It, It almost makes it sound like the other four don't really count, because whether you kill five people or kill one person, it's going to amount to the same sentence if the sentences are being served concurrently or at the same time. But the court argues here, quoting again from the summary, the effects of a sentence of imprisonment for life without a realistic possibility of parole 
support the conclusion that it is degrading in nature and thus intrinsically incompatible with human dignity. Offenders who have no realistic possibility of parole are deprived of any incentive to reform. Now, I disagree with that. I think whether you're... uh, Obviously, it's strongly preferable to be outside of prison than to be confined to prison. I think Tamara Leach, who spent 18 days in jail uh, on on political trumped-up charges, uh, you know, would probably testify to that if she was on this podcast, which she can't be because it would probably violate her bail conditions. But, you know, of, of course, nobody wants to be in jail. And it, I can only imagine how unpleasant it must be. But to say that you're deprived of any incentive to reform, I think that's kind of a condescending, patronizing statement about people in jail, because you can reform yourself in many ways, whether you're in jail or not, you can become, uh, you can cultivate virtue, you can become more patient, more kind, more this, more that you can cultivate the, the virtues of, of courage and wisdom, and so on and so forth, whether you're in jail or not. The Supreme Court uh, argues that the feeling of leading a monotonous, futile existence in isolation from their loved ones and from the outside world is very hard to tolerate, so much so that some prefer to put an end to their lives rather than die slowly and endure suffering that seems endless to them. I would, uh, if I was, you know, having a chat with, with the nine justices, uh, draw to their attention a book by Viktor Frankl called Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist and his memoir of life in a Nazi death camp has riveted generations of readers uh, because Viktor Frankl talks about his own experience and the stories of his patients as a psychiatrist uh, after the war. He argues that we cannot avoid suffering, but we can choose how to cope with it and we can find meaning in it and we can move forward. So again, values judgment. I would disagree with the Supreme Court if they say that somebody who's serving a life sentence is just, you know, doomed to this meaningless existence and uh, that they're deprived of any capacity to reform. I think, no, it is a severe punishment to be in jail. But I think the court is is pushing that too far when they when they argue those points. Well, to me, I hear a lot of things that could be applied to a lockdown situation. And I'm actually kind of pleased that the court is putting a high value on freedom. And I hope they're consistent with that going forward into these other court cases. But that was the problem going back to Richard Wagner's comments on the Freedom Convoy that seemed to, I guess, contradict what they're talking about in this ruling here. Hmm. Yeah, this language here, I think, uh, I mean, being locked up in prison, I think, is more severe than what the lockdowns were. I I want to be clear on that. But this language here, the feeling of leading a monotonous, futile existence in isolation from their loved ones or from the outside world is very hard to tolerate, so much so that some prefer to put an end to their lives rather than die slowly and endure suffering that seems endless to them. I think all of that, even with lockdowns being less severe than prison, uh, that really was the experience of so many people. Right. Well, that's what I kept hearing as you were reading this was, uh, well, I hope they're consistent with this going forward. But that's just an observation, a political observation. Speaking of uh, speaking of politics again, really interesting tidbit in this summary on the Bissonnette case. The government, as I've mentioned often on this podcast, the government has the onus of arguing why the law is valid. And now this law was passed under Harper, and I gather it was challenged under... Uh, well, 2017. Okay, so the crime That's took Trudeau. place. Crime took place under under Trudeau, and so the constitutional challenge would have been launched in uh, 2017 or thereafter. Now we get to one part of the ruling. So the court has said, okay, well, this is you know this is a big violation of the uh, Charter Section 12 right to be free from cruel and unusual punishment, and it's. Uh, violation of the Charter Section 7 right to life, liberty, and security of the person. And it says here, the infringement of Section 12 of the Charter is not justified under Section 1. Section 1 is the justification where the government has to justify the violation of a Charter right of freedom. 
In order to justify an infringement of a charter right, the state is required to show that the impugned law addresses a pressing and substantial objective, and that the means chosen to achieve that objective are proportional to it. In this case, since no arguments were made concerning the justification for the impugned provision, the state did not discharge the onus resting on it. <laughs> so to me, this looks like the federal government didn't even defend the law in court because... Well, they could just have the Supreme Court strike down a law that they probably disagreed with because it was a conservative Harper law to shift from concurrent sentences to consecutive sentences. Knowing the current government, they probably didn't like uh, the current law. And so when challenging court, they uh, it says here, no arguments were made concerning the justification for the impugned provision. Yeah, but I recall this, uh, the publicity around this being um, somewhat controversial. This was a uh, a problematic thing because of the, uh, I guess, the, the nature of the crime uh, with his uh, going into a mosque and killing uh, six worshippers. I think it was six or five. But uh, yeah, so there was uh, some outcry because of that. Well, it would be open to a future government to use an outstanding clause and just say we're putting section 745.51 back on the books. There you go. So mm -hmm. there can be there can be a back and forth, you know, a dance if you want to call it that between parliament and provincial legislatures and the court. And there can be a back and forth. And uh so the question you know, isn't really settled. I mean, it's settled to a point at this at this juncture is what you're saying, right? Still uh could come up again. Not the final. Well, one. I would I, yeah, the the current government, seeing as they didn't even defend the law in court, they're not going to use the notwithstanding clause to opt out of it. Okay. okay. So another values judgment, voluntary intoxication. So this is the uh, Brown decision. Uh, Mr. Brown voluntarily ingested alcohol and magic mushrooms. Uh, magic mushrooms contain psilocybin. Not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. An illegal drug that can bring about hallucinations. Mr. Brown lost his grip on reality. He left the house. Mr. Brown was not simply drunk or high. While capable of physical movement, he was in a psychotic state and had no willed control over his actions. So here we have the Supreme Court ruling that Mr. Brown cannot be held criminally liable because he didn't know what he was doing. Well, I, I agree in the sense that, yeah, he was uh, probably out of his mind. And ordinarily, uh, and this is a valid point, your criminal conviction is based on your actus reus, which is the guilty action. It's what you did. And there's the mens rea, which is the guilty mind. So, for example, let's say you're in a store and... You've, your hands are full with a bunch of items and you see one more item that you need. You put it in your pocket with the full intention of paying for it, but you get to the till, you're busy, you're frazzled, maybe you've got some kids with you, you've got your hands full and you sincerely, you intended to pay for it, but your hands were so full, you only put it in your pocket for that reason. You walk out of the store, you, you pay for all the other items, you walk out of the store with the item in your pocket now, that, the actus reus is there. You, you took something without paying for it. The mens rea is lacking. Now, trying to prove that in court could be an uphill fight. You'd have to persuade the judge that you sincerely forgot. But if the judge believes you and says, okay, yeah, I believe you, you sincerely forgot, then you're not guilty of theft because theft requires both the action of taking something that doesn't belong to you and the guilty mind that you... Uh, you knew what you were doing while you were doing it. So it's a valid point to say Mr. Brown did not have the ordinary, he didn't have the mens rea because he was in a psychotic state. But, you know, my beef with it is, look, uh, unless somebody poured the alcohol down your throat uh, or unless somebody injected you, you know, involuntarily or somebody put some drug in your drink when you weren't looking, you do make a choice about what to consume and if you voluntarily consumed alcohol or drugs, then the question becomes, if you do go bonkers and berserk, should it be the person who voluntarily consumed the alcohol and drugs who pays the price for that, even though you know they don't meet the ordinary criminal requirements because they're out of their minds, right? 
Or is it society that has to pay? So if somebody gets raped or killed or assaulted or whatever, and while the victim has to suck it up, you know, just because this person that voluntarily consumed uh, the, the wrong drugs or alcohol or the wrong combination or the wrong quantity was out of their mind. Now here the court, you know, said, look, uh, we, we can't have a criminal conviction of somebody when they're out of their mind and that that's an important legal principle, which again, I, I agree. Yes, ordinarily, but if somebody's consuming this stuff voluntarily, uh, I think it should be the person that voluntarily consumed that should pay the price and not at the, the expense of uh, victims of crime that have to just suck it up. Right, but the mens rea is on the consumption side of it, so they they can be charged with, what, drinking excessively and going out of their mind, but as soon as they're out of their mind, they can't be charged with anything? In other words, a lesser crime? Is that what you're arguing for here? Or are you saying that, you know, sorry, they have to be tied together the full deal? Well, I mean, to... Uh to have too much to drink and to get drunk in an, in and of itself is not a is not a crime. So there's no mens rea there either, right? I you you can have whatever it takes to get you drunk. That'll be different quantities for different people. But let's say for you to consume an entire bottle of wine, about four and a half glasses, or let's say two bottles of wine, nine glasses. So you're really wasted. That that's not a crime. Uh, if you get behind the wheel of a car, then you know, it's, it's impaired driving, which is, which is criminal. My, my point is here. Now, it, there are nuances to this, by the way. If you look up the decision on the Supreme Court website, we don't have time to get into the details. Uh, it, it is nuanced. In the court summary here, uh, it says Parliament blocked the defense of automatism for the extremely intoxicated offender for two legitimate purposes. One, to protect the victims of extremely intoxicated violence with particular attention to women and children whose equal place in society is compromised by sexual assaults and other violent crimes of general intent. And secondly, to call offenders to answer for their choice to voluntarily ingest intoxicants where that choice creates a risk of violent crime. So the court does get it, but then they say that the uh, criminal code section that they're striking down, which is uh, criminal code section 33.1, they say that Parliament should achieve this uh, by different means. And they also mention that it's too broad because you could conceivably get into trouble if you took some prescribed medications, right? So you're not a party animal, but you know, you got medication prescribed to you for a medical condition. And this just knocks you out of your mind and you enter into a automatism state, then it's not fair that you be held criminally responsible for your actions when you're in that state. And so if the court is correct, maybe this just needs to be narrowed because there I would see there's a distinction there as well, right? If I if I have some health condition, I get prescribed a medication, I've never taken it before, I take it in good faith, following doctor's instructions, I'm not trying to get high. It's kind of voluntary, but it's not same kind of voluntary because the doctor said you got to take this to get better. So if I take a if I take a pill for a medical condition that the doctor has asked me to take, and then I go into some you know crazy psychotic state, okay, that's different, right? But Mr. Brown in his in his circumstances was uh, he voluntarily ingested the alcohol and, and the magic mushrooms. Right. Can I just quickly broaden this out a little bit by what you just told me? This seems to be like the situation that we were talking about with Morgenthaler, where the court strikes down a law, says, okay, you need to modify this. So what if they don't modify it? Are we going to end up in a situation of total anarchy here with uh, anybody who drops uh, acid or takes an illegal drug can suddenly get out of jail free because they have to, they just claim they're in a psychotic state? I mean, are we in that situation now until something happens? Probably yes. Just for clarity's sake, I would say this is not an easy defense to bring forward. I mean, the Crown is going to argue you were not, you know, okay, so you you took a baseball bat and you, you know, beat your next door neighbor to death or you, you injured them severely with a baseball bat attack. The accused person can't just say, oh, well, I was just in a psychotic state. I didn't know what I was doing. That's just, you, you need a lot of evidence to 
prove. The starting point is you're innocent until proven guilty. But once the Crown has established that you did take the baseball bat and you did attack your next door neighbor, once that's established, the onus then shifts to the accused person to prove that they were in a psychotic state and really didn't know what they were doing. That's not easy to prove. You would need psychiatric evaluations and you probably have medical experts in court and doctors testifying about the effects of different drugs and how much of that drug did you take and were you really in a state where you actually didn't know what you were doing. So just to say that, you know, this is not, in terms of numbers, this is not, you're not going to see uh, thousands or tens of thousands of people getting acquitted just by walking into court going, hey, I was just, I was just really drunk. I didn't know what I was doing. It's not that simple. It's not that easy. But it's still important because even if it pertains to a small number of victims of crime and a small number of accused people, it, it's still important. Good. Okay. So sounds like we're standing at the top of the slippery slope on that one, which isn't that reassuring based on precedent, I suppose. At any rate, I think we'll call an end to episode 23 of Justice with John Carpe. Thanks a lot for being with us this week, and I look forward to talking to you next week. All right, Kevin, talk to you next week. 